your prime. Cocoons of Horror, don't the podcast. To thank, don't forget to thank Allison and Sophia. It's embedded in the text. Okay, good. That was actually my best Cocoons of Horror, by the way. Because like I typically make horror just go horror. Right? Like it's like mm-hmm. sounds like Tom Brokaw. Mm-hmm. It's not one of our best English language words. It's a horrible title. The people can't <laughs> spell cocoons. We can't say exactly. horror. Or, yeah, it's a... Uh, gotta rethink this whole thing. <laughs> Welcome to Cocoons of Horror. Today, by request of listeners Allison and Sophia, oh, very good. We take a look at the John Hughes comedy Sixteen Candles, a whimsical look at the budding sexuality of teenagers intermingled with problematic racial stereotypes. Here to dissect this film with me is Dr. Anthony Ladon. Steve, would it be bad for me to be thankful that John Hughes is dead? <laughs> wow. Well, that's uh, all right. Well, okay. Let's unpack that. <laughs> I mean, I know he's one of the great filmmakers of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And but you, but you're glad he's dead. I just think maybe he's run his course. You know, maybe in this case, dead is better. <laughs> um. Okay. Um, I don't think that there's any room for him in the modern world. I suppose. Is what I'm so saying. you're saying that. So you're saying that there was no room for growth for John Hughes. I mean, John Hughes. Are you holding him responsible for um, everything? Uh, yes, everything. For everything that every, everything we thought in the eighties. <laughs> uh huh. You don't see him as no. Maybe a barometer, but you see him as actual climate. <laughs> Like, like the reason the reason we were maybe a certain way in the eighties is because John Hughes uh, begat that. Yeah, he was the mad scientist that created the nineteen eighties. Now, if you've got a problem with sixteen candles, you uh, you sh- shouldn't watch Weird Science. Well, I want to talk about Weird Science a little bit, but let me ask you this question first. Mm-hmm. What is your relationship with John Hughes? Um, I'd say it's it's very extensive. Right. I mean, um, there are certain John Hughes movies that I have uh, a uh, more of a kinship with than others. I mean, at least in terms of uh, watch and rewatch um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Breakfast Club. I mean, how many times have I seen Breakfast Club? Who's to say? Uh, um He's responsible for Home Alone. There's a the certain responsibility mm-hmm. he has for the vacation series. Right. Yeah, this movie was his directorial debut. Mm-hmm. On the movie poster for 16 Candles, it said, from the man that brought you vacation and Mr. Mom. Right. Right? So, it's, it, you know, this is definitely something of an entree for him, but he had been around and making... He was a known commodity, stuff. right? Yeah. yeah, right, right. And I will say this for John Hughes. When I was 10 years old, my first viewing of Weird Science, there were very few movies that I, after I finished the movie, I thought that was the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's like and a 10-year-old 10 10-year-old me, 10-year-old me saw Weird Science 
And afterwards, I just thought, that's it. That's the best. That, how could you make a better movie than this? This is, this is the height of culture. <laughs> this is the height of culture. Maybe the height of my life. <laughs> All right, we're going to play a game here. This is the, uh, who's the worst person in this movie? And if I get it wrong, will you play a gong noise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, worst person, you've got the 16-year-old sophomore who ogles the naked senior girl in the locker room. That's option number one. Mm-hmm. Option number two. The freshman who sexually harasses the sophomore girl and then charges a dollar a pop to see her underwear. <laughs> okay. That's option number two. Option number three, the senior boy who basically trades his girlfriend to a budding sex offender. That's option number three. Number four, the grandmother who gropes her granddaughter. (laughs) That would be option four. Or option five, the entire population of suburbs Chicago for their (laughs) pervasive racism. (laughs) So you're... That is a fun game. (laughs) Which which door do you want to go through, Steve? Um, I'm not going to put the grandma. I mean, look, grandma... She's a visual learner, right? This is not, this is not where you want to go. This is the this is the end. This is the end of you, Steve. You're saying that of the entire group, she's the most justified. Well, I mean, you've given me kind of a uh, an odd group, right? I'm I didn't ask who's let... the best. I well, asked who's the worst. Right. So I'm starting to eliminate and go, okay. okay All right. You're giving dad. the grandma a pass. I'm giving she, the... It's very well that she could be struggling with dementia. <laughs> sure. So, old people steal. On cocoons of horror, old people get a pass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. J- Jake does take a turn, right? Like, I mean, because Jake has, like, you can understand. <sighs> I mean, Anthony Michael Hall is a horrible person, but at least he realizes. I don't want to take your girlfriend who's passed out drunk. Don't please don't. Please so don't. So he he strike so Anthony Michael Hall's character I think kind of represents the untethered hormonal imbalance that is puberty, right? Like I mean like he's so he's <laughs> this is what it would look like, like almost like he's a caricature, right? Like this is he is how like boys felt inside, right? <laughs> to some degree and so mm-hmm. he just is acting out on it so it's almost like they've personified a feeling or something and so yeah because geeks don't feel like geeks geeks feel like deep down i'm cool if people would just realize who i am deep down and how important a dozen floppy disks really are right and and he's trying to he's he's navigating this going well you know this is how you act on these things this is how you would be cool you just got to go take it right you just take it <laughs> and uh and then but when he's kind of comes face to face with it you know hey he can make a mean martini apparently um and he um i mean he actually does the little lemon twist like rim, you know around the rim solid move but then when he like comes face to face with it, like he starts to push off like whoa, whoa, whoa now i'm actually getting what i want Ugh. like everything everything prior would mm-hmm. be like of course give me a a passed out woman in a in a Rolls Royce, and then when he has the option, it's like ah, I don't know, man. But it's you know, so there's there's an opportunity for him, right? I feel like almost in every other movie I've ever seen, that's the guy I'm supposed to be rooting for, right? And it could just be that everyone in this movie, I, I think, is except for 
the Sam character is supposed to be a deeply flawed character, and it, and we're supposed to be laughing at that. And in that case, in in that way, I think, yeah, I get it. Well, because her reaction to him like jumping on her is sort of casual, right? Um, which is weird, but so it's so it feels like it's played. It's certainly going to be played for laughs. Those laughs don't happen a bunch right now, maybe. No, exactly. But, but exactly. even still, the way that her character plays it off is to say that, look, we may only be a year apart, but that year makes a big difference in going, look, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. We Settle down, freshman. You won't be doing this in a year kind of a thing. Um, that, at least that's sort of the vibe you get, right? Um, but Jake takes an interesting turn because we learn, but I think it's interesting too, because like Jake is this sort of quiet, confident character that sam is attracted to but then as we start to see jake it's like oh he's he's not just this brooding introspective guy necessarily he's still a teenager he's a spoiled teenager he is a very rich teenager who that's the other thing like wealth is kind of i think an element of this right i think it's probably a big element of this there's something about sort of the the sense of entitlement that rich white young men feel like Mm -hmm. they're owed and I think that this he does feel like he's owed something. Yeah, and I wonder, be curious, and I'm like, is is Hughes offering a critique, or is he just giving a glimpse into this world? Like, is that where he's from? Is this? It's played for laughs to somewhat that the whole house is completely thrashed, but there is a way that he kind of walks through everything. Like, I don't feel any sense of urgency, and I almost don't feel any sense of remorse. So there seems to be almost baked in it. Like, I don't care either. One, we have so much money, it doesn't matter. Or yeah. two, maybe my parents are so focused on money that like it's like the, the the idea of being forgotten right like that's a very theme it's a it's a central central theme for sam's character because her birthday has been forgotten she's getting lost in the shuffle so if you look this looks like a bunch of people that are forgotten or his girlfriend doesn't really care about him right. as a person and s- she doesn't even ask him can we use right. your house for a party so his yeah uh so he's sort of forgotten by his right. girlfriend. so you have these you know and then um you know, the donger is forgotten uh, by a nation. I don't think that the donger has ever been forgotten. I feel like even even when he's not around, they're wondering what happened to the right. donger. They don't know that he's been in a tree. <laughs> yeah. How do, why is he in a tree? Oh, well. <laughs> what, what? What happened there? <laughs> well, you know, everybody's waiting for like some sort of like Mandalorian esque spin off uh, sequel or you know <laughs> series that you would end up having. Just you know, like the Don- the Donger well- <laughs> Chronicles. <laughs> I do think that there's a parallel between Jake and Sam in this movie. They're both passive in a way that's supposed to make you feel like they're not as bad as everyone else. Right, and so and so when you talk about like the badness and the casual racism and everything which again let's not discount that from a from a cultural perspective but in terms of are these characters real or do these characters seem authentic for that time that that all does make sense to me to you know well they're all exaggerated but i mean I think. why would why wouldn't they i mean even the casually racist if if they're surrounded by casual racism right why wouldn't they yeah but i don't know i think that i think your point is that he's he's more of a mirror he's more reflecting mm-hmm. high school well and there culture. may be a critique too right there may be a critique of what maybe the eight the excess of the 80s has done to the to the high schooler right like i take your 70s high schooler experience and you say okay well what if you give it all this excess 
what do you have? Mm. What you have is you have sort of this this uh, hypersexualized, uh, you know, latchkey, left alone, kind of uh, forgotten youth. Um, because the eighties is the way that the eighties and the excess and the materialism is moving, that it's got to have some sort of an impact on, on Mm -hmm. the teenager who is, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. I think that there was a lot of, there were a lot of movies like that in the eighties where the laugh was in the exaggeration. Right. So like even the premise of this movie is exaggerated. So what's, what's the premise? There's a girl who is, looking forward to her 16th birthday party and it's completely forgotten by her family. All right. That's probably captures something of the, the sort of the teenage experience, you know, that you're not, you know, you're, you're a middle child and you've been forgotten or something like that. Would it, would anyone actually forget someone's 16th birthday party? If they're attentive enough to plan a wedding near it? I don't think so. Right. I don't. Th- I don't think it's realistic that that there's no one in that house that would think like we've been planning this wedding. Uh, look, it it happens to be the day after our other daughter's birthday. It's just not going to happen. So the whole thing's exaggerated, and I think that uh, uh, in this in this way, race is going to be exaggerated, and sexuality is going to be exaggerated, and the geeks in this story are going to be exaggerated, and it just so happens that. You gotta be really good at doing that and not trip over the line there. So, I guess my question is: Did it trip over the line when it came out, or did it trip over the line later? It's 1984. Is it tripping over the line in '84, or is it tripping over the line in 2022? Because I, I, I think it's easy to say 2022. It's it's tripping over the line, and then you go, okay, well, look, it, it can be real easy to, you know, to to look back and say, hey, this was indicative of the time and it should be held to the standard. I mean, you should, I mean, rewatching, recommending all that I think is, is, is fair game to sit there and say, okay, by today's standards, is this a movie you want to introduce your child to? Right? Like, I think that's a good question, right? That, that, and that's a different question than was John Hughes doing something at the time that was egregious or was he, you know, well, it depends on who's watching, right? So I think from our points of view, probably not. Even if I was watching this movie when I was 10, the Godfather music would have gone way over my head, right? But I doubt that Asian Americans are not seeing sure. the problem in sure. 1984. Right. Right? I mean... It's not a celebration of their culture. I think that John Hughes does like to... I, I think he likes to press the envelope a little bit with these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think, if you really want to get deep on the donger, like, like that's the guy I want to hang out. I, I absolutely want to party sure. with the donger. And if there's anyone in this, like, like everyone else in this movie is probably, <laughs> everyone else in the movie is probably a moral monster. I don't think you can think about it. No, he's, about the he's, donger. he's the harbinger of fun. Like he brings it. He's the fair. He's not trapped of this by movie. all the other stuff. Right. I mean, he's like, Let's get it. Let's get weird. Let's smoke these cigarettes. Let's drink this drink. Let's crash this car. I wonder if this movie would have read differently if there wasn't the constant gonging whenever he'd show up. I mean, obviously, there's still. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because it feels like, I mean, it's clearly racist, but it doesn't feel like it's always malicious. Oh, he's othered by the movie, and yet. 
He's having the night of his life. He's he's having the night that everyone in this movie wishes right. that they could have. He gets beat up by the, yeah. <laughs> Jake at one point, unfortunately. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not great. Yeah, that's what the right so this movie ends like in a way that's like hey look jake and sam get what they want you're like is that what i was rooting for (laughs) is this what i've been rooting for the whole time (laughs) because it is a little surprising (laughs) but yeah it is interesting like we said you know uh because this movie was sort of embraced by um young women my older sister is your wife right you know it's so i don't want to take their experience away and i certainly don't want to like add my critique to it and whatever. And, 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 you know, we experience what we experience. Um, but also there's probably not a lot of movies for young women by young women. Right. I mean, this is, this is sexuality, both male and female uh, being told by uh, a male writer. Right. Um, and so there's going to be, there's just, I think inherently going to be misfires. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's what you see. And, and I think there, but I think there's something to be said, yeah, you see him think, in every scene. Yeah, that I, I mean, yeah. that's that. <laughs> it's right. not subtle. Well, and I think, there, but I think there the is place, something so. to be said overall for just, uh, you know, puberty, whether it's male or female, is just a nightmare, and adolescence is not our best work as as a species. So I want to read this uh, email from Allison, who suggested that we watch this because she really sort of connects this to Stranger Things in a way I think is is interesting. She says, Nancy and Steve are fascinating to reevaluate through the lens of John Hughes movies. They at once seem quintessential Hughes characters and yet have the freedom to expand outside their stereotypes. Steve begins as the man on campus, whom we all hope has a softer side. He's got all the tropes, including the cool rich friends, the hair, the swagger, the glaze of meanness over what might be a sensitive, gooey center. And rather than gross eagerness to ply the supposed upside pretty nerd with the beer and put a notch on his bedpost, Nancy, on the other hand, seems to fit the Molly Ringwald mold. Virtually passive-aggressive 80s stand-in for Eleanor Dashwood, right? Someone who's supposed to be smarter and better than the room around her, if only someone would be smart enough to notice her goodness, because she takes little or no action on her own, Early on, things happen to a docile Nancy by boys, parents, but rarely by her. I'm pretty sure 16 Candles, Sam, symbolic plot point of undies being traded around like a bizarre trophy only to be saved by the hero came from Austin's cutting room floor. And then she says, ugh, John Hughes, loving the working class spotlight, but geez, had nothing changed from the 1800s to the 1980s for female characters. Back to Nancy. After having beer happen to her, Barbara's ousting happens to her, and Steve happens to her. She sheds the Molly Ringwald and embarks onto the after with absolutely no ever attached. She morphs into a self-actualized person. She's believably graduated into a gun-wielding, monster-killing detective journalistic machine. So I thought that was really well said, Mm -hmm. and I do like that early on we do read Nancy like Molly Ringwald. I think that the difference in this film is that we never really see the Sam character take any agency. Sure. How does this movie end? Well, the boy shows up and the boy invites her into the car and she gets into the car and she's happy that it happened. And I think that that's exactly why the Nancy character works in Stranger Things is that I guess the precedent is set 
that we would just expect passivity out of this character. Sure. Because we've seen John. Right. And the, and the, the female character is always rescued, so to speak. Right. And that's exactly what happens, is that she gets rescued from her social predicament by Jake, who I think at this point we're supposed to think still a good guy, even though he was horse trading his old girlfriend with Anthony Michael Hall. Right. And so that's, and so that's where it's like, it's an odd one, because so much is played for laughs and being ridiculous. But at the same time, the narrative would suggest that you're still supposed to be working through those things to a positive end mm-hmm. and that like, gets it, it's really odd like i mean it's a very like i don't know why the movie ends the way it does and how i'm supposed to feel about it is there a half the battle one to grow on moment in this movie <laughs> check in parents maybe, maybe take a look at a calendar once in a while <laughs> Is there one cliche trope or stereotype that worked for you in this movie? Outside of the donger. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you mine. The younger brother, Mike. Oh, dude. Like he's, a, he's a horrible person, too. I mean, that's, that's not... He's, he's just as bad as everyone else in suburb Chicago. Right. But that sort of snarky younger brother who's a little bit... You know, he's just there to kind of create problems for the character that you really care about. This actor, Justin Henry, this this part he just played to a T. Yeah, I, and I think that there's a realism there too, even though he's like again exaggerated as a character. But it's like the further down the line you go, elsewhere, clearly the more kids, the worse for at least in terms of the level of engagement for the parents. Is now it's a survival thing, right? Like this is who he's going to become. Like everybody's sort of unchecked, right? I mean, and that's that again. I go back to: is this an intentional critique? Is this just a result? I don't know. That's kind of feel like that's an ongoing theme, right? Is like the parent and adolescent relationship, regardless of who initiated the divide, the divide exists. And I think for him to be going through this, like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna create chaos. He's so bad. He's an agent of chaos, and I bought it. He's an evil younger brother. That's what he is. Sure. And so you need a character that is believably evil. And I believe that this character is really evil. Um, I will say too, I, um, I did make a note and I think it's worth at least discussing a little bit. The word asshole. Yeah. In the eighties, like especially like 84, 85 range, like the word asshole was, was it new? (laughs) Was it like when we, when I think of the word asshole, I think of it as an insult, like just like it's a jerk. Right. Yeah. I don't really think of it as a body part. I think of the word butthole as a body part. Sure. And butthole is way funnier to me than asshole. But I think in the 80s. Well, it's less connotative. The connotations of asshole are that you're acting in a particular way. And and I think in the 80s, I'm guessing around this time, asshole still was like it, it held the butthole level of insult. Like, like, well, there is the more one scene with the older sister, right? right. The, old, the, the older sister, you know what? You know, you're acting like, uh, and she takes a beat, right? As if she's inventing a new word, an asshole. I, I'll be honest, I laughed. It was, it was a good delivery. It, it worked in this, in this particular scene because, of course, the older sister's being the asshole, right? And 
I, I was not expecting that particular insult to come off of her lips. So I, I certainly laughed at it. But it, I, yeah, so the question is, I mean, what, did it have the same sort of cultural connotative value as it does now? And I, think, and I think it was more along the lines of anatomical. And I think the reason why I bring that up is because it always bugged me in Back to the Future. Like kind of the big payoff at the end, you know, they're gonna go like he's back and he's gonna take you to to the future, and he and he's like, well, what do we become assholes or something? Like, and I don't get the sense that what he's saying is, do we become off-putting people later? You know, like I, I sure hope we don't lose our values. You know, like it it it's played more for laughs, like, and so it it has uh-huh. to be like the word has to have, had to have meant something more, and not that we need to do too much hermeneutics on the word asshole, but um. It just, it struck me, it struck me that like that beat, like you said, like that was a big payoff. And whereas now that wouldn't be nearly the payoff, like that wouldn't, that's, <laughs> you would come up with something more interesting, I would think. You know, what else about that scene that caught me was, and this is why I think in many ways, John Hughes is writing about his own high school experience from the seventies, is that I think that there's a number of John Hughes movies where the romantic comedy ends with a high schooler getting married. Mm. That's not how we thought of marriage in the eighties. You know, we didn't think, well, well, how do I want my life to look? As soon as I graduate from high school, I want to get married. That's just not the way we thought. And yet, you know, this character's got it all put together. You know, the older sister, she's sort of the epitome for the child who has everything she found an oily bohunk that will love her for at least six months. Let's get hitched. Right. At the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's fascinating to me that here you have this horrible person. <laughs> I mean, he's just he's just a he's a nightmare of a teenage boy who's lying to everyone, who's stealing, who's not a really great person to his best friend. And he thinks at the end of the movie, he thinks, yeah, I'll probably get married to my high school sweetheart. It's it's a very sort of antiquated view of the way a teenager thinks. Yeah. Same thing with his movie. I mean, it's well, Sloan says Molly that Ringwald at the end. is going to find the guy, yeah. right? Sloan Peterson says, he's going to marry me. And like, that's a, that's, right. that's, if you look at the movie now and play for what it is, it's like, oh, wow, her life just got worse. Right now, you'd think, no, 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 no. Go, wait, what about college? What about college? You know, right, right. In 1984, it seems to be like, oh no, that that's the mark of someone who really figured it out by the end of high school, that they found someone that they really love, and now they're going to settle down and be a good adult. This is sort of John Hughes's vision, and I really think it probably doesn't fit in the 80s as well as it would like in the 1970s mm, okay is this movie better worse or on par with a ron howard movie that is a good question um because i'm trying to think of like a, a comparison and if, if the closest comparison i can come up with is parenthood in terms of like, like mm. kind of style and theme and I gotta right. go, you know, Howard minus three. I was gonna say Howard minus one. 
but we're both sort of in the same ballpark, I suppose. And again, I'm and if I'm holding it to Parenthood, and we, I think we've talked about this, we think Parenthood may be the best Ron Howard film, so it may have a little bit more of a bump. So maybe I, maybe if I take the baseline mm-hmm. Howard, maybe I get more into the minus two, minus one range. Like it's a, I, like sure. I'll, I'll live on a Parenthood minus three, a Ron Howard minus yeah. one, minus two. Sure. It, it, it just didn't feel like it it felt abrupt. Like I felt like we got to that third act. And then by the time we got to the resolution, like there was just some serious gaps. Like I felt like we were building a world and I'm problematic as it may have been. And then it tied up. Like, I I mean, it felt like there needed to be like another 15, 20 minutes of something Mm -hmm. or maybe eliminate a a plot point. Like maybe you don't need the wedding. It did feel at times, I mean, there is a through plot, but it did feel at times like sort of a pastiche of various typical high school scenes Mm -hmm. kind of run together. Um, a survey of the high school landscape. And so it wasn't as tight of a movie as you would, that you might see Ron Howard make. Yeah. I think at some point we need to talk a little bit about the relationship between John Hughes and Molly Ringwald. Mm. If you're not, if you're listening to this and you're not up to speed, so John Hughes is the writer and the director. And of course, Molly Ringwald is the title character. And I think that he just fell in love with her. Like he, I think he fell in love with a fifteen-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the basic story. You know, he just started writing movies for her, and he he was just enamored with her. He thought she was amazing, and she had a crush on him. And so there was a little. There's a little bit of me that when I'm watching this movie that I'm just thinking a little uncomfortable. Well, it's a little uncomfortable here. Just a tiny, yeah, a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I think I felt that, too. So it is a little harder uh, to watch some of that, especially because she's truly, like, I think, 15 or 16 when this movie is being made. Yeah, um, and right. She's 15. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of, you know, it's impossible to, to not know that a little bit now, right? I mean, like, the more you know about the filmmakers, the films change. You know, I mean, like, we've talked about this with certain, you know, with, with comedians, once you find out certain things about them it's hard to watch some of their previous performances without mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. you know oh well this was this a confessional or was this a joke right and so um so it does you know it, it's hard to just completely separate yourself and take the movie as what it is and i don't know if you've been there necessarily you're supposed to right i mean it's kind of thing about art but it was it was it was definitely a more vexing watch than i had anticipated I uh did you ever have the visor sunglasses with just the one long strip of lens? No, no, but you know, I hope they I wonder if they make them in prescription. I did. I had those. Did you really? So uh all right, so here I was at a picnic with my father and a bug got in my eye and scratched my eye. So my dad took me to the doctor and they put a uh like one of these white patches over my eye Mm. and so my dad said well you know what maybe we'll go buy you a pair of sunglasses now i had never owned a pair of sunglasses before and i think my dad was thinking well my son's got a patch over his eye of course he's gonna want to cover this thing up (laughs) with with some you know big (laughs) big state trooper sunglasses or something and of course when we were there what i wanted I wanted the sunglasses that looked like the 
glowing strip in front of the Knight Rider yeah, trans. In front of Kit, yeah. I thought that's what's cool. And I think what was cool about it for me was I thought I can sort of imagine that the lens would give me even better peripheral vision. <laughs> And of course, these things are like maybe an inch tall, they're, they're, or less, right. they're less than an inch tall. They're not covering up this patch at all. So for a while, just a few days, but for a while, I had a patch, a big like medical patch <laughs> taped over one oh eye. Oh my gosh! And I was wearing the Trans Am sunglasses. <laughs> just thinking, it was man. one of the best. It was one of the best moments of my life. Just just interesting need a captain's hat to sort of cap it off. I mean, oh gosh, those sunglasses were great. <laughs> they did not last. There was maybe like maybe two years in the eighties where those were actually cool. They did not stick around. If they made them like same style, but maybe a little wider, like maybe an inch and a half, two inches, do you think we could bring them back? I think that old people wear those. Like, just make them, like, really, like, make them, like, five inches tall. Just old people just wandering around. I've seen old folks wear those. <laughs> like, Keep eh. as much light out of your eyeballs. And what we've established here that, uh, you know, old people can get away with a lot more. <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, it would be criminal not to mention Joan Cusack. She, for me, she's... Worth the entire movie. Oh yeah, she's just fantastic. <laughs> she's she's like orbiting the movie like a, like a distant moon. Like that, you could totally tell this story without her in it at all. And yet, she's my favorite part of this movie. Well, and it's interesting because it does as as repellent as Anthony Michael Hall's character can be when they're on the bus. Having her there shifts it, helps it be comical, right? Like he's all up on her and all up in her face, but it does sort of feel like there. at least there's an audience of one. She's just happy that anyone's talking with her. <laughs> like this is probably the worst person in Chicago that's on this bus. <laughs> and she's just happy that someone would take the time to just have a connection. <laughs> I want to care. I want a Disney Plus spinoff with just her character. I want to know how she injured the neck. I want to see her try to drink out of every drinking fountain in the entire high school. Even her little sweater she, had a skirt that it would lift up. <laughs> she had a little skirt on her sweater. She was amazing. <laughs> I think we're ready to do some feedback. All right. I have an email for you, and I have an email for me. Cool. Um, should we do me first or you first? Let's do you first. All right. This is from Jane. Hey, Anthony. Hate to out myself as the over-the-top Stephen King nerd that I apparently am, but while listening to your Stand By Me coverage, your comment that the Goocher isn't mentioned in the novella had me running to the bookshelf to grab my copy of Different Seasons, and it didn't take me long to find the page. I've actually attached a picture here, and she did. There's a screenshot. The Goocher is most certainly mentioned by name. Please try to conduct your research better in the future. Well, thank you, Jane. Uh, I happily admit my error and i probably should confess something else here i read that novella by some weird russian 
illegal website that gives me books for free. <laughs> and I want no expense, no expense uh, spared for research here. I could and I don't know it. if Gucher is like a like inappropriate language in Russia. Like maybe Gucher is. <laughs> Maybe well, maybe is a, is a really bad swear in Russia, but my copy, which was just a bootleg uh, PDF, it sorry was, Stephen it was a King, Russian, a Russian kids book report. <laughs> sorry Stephen King, but I stole your book. You're not going to get those twenty five cents. Uh, yeah, my copy didn't have it, so I mean, it's just I, I don't want to just call this an excuse on my part. It absolutely is an excuse on my part. <laughs> But Jane, you're right. I'm wrong because I I can see by your screenshot that you're you know legit physical copy of yeah, the body English. has it, <laughs> and it is yes, it's not in Cyrillic. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know it's 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 not my prouder moment to have to confess that I actually stole this book. <laughs> Listening to it via Google Translate. Uh, just in my defense, if you ever need one of my books, uh, I'm happy to have you steal it. These things are way too expensive. As, as an author, <laughs> you might think that just, you know, mm-hmm. this would be the one area that you might have a little bit nope. more integrity. No, I guess not. Nope. Right? Yeah. In Someone fact, who's I, out there trying I almost to raise used money. It to, actually, I use it to justify almost anything. Like, well, I am an author, so I can... I can get away with uh, jaywalking or whatever it is. Well, I mean, in your defense, you're an author, so you don't have any money. That's true. That's that's very true, and it's sad. Uh, all right, this is a question from Heather A. in Sebastopol, California. Hmm, seems familiar. Mm-hmm. Steve, when you're at the end of your days, ready to meet your maker, which do you choose? To have loved ones holding your hand and talking softly to you as you go into the great beyond, or do you choose to have Bradley Cooper snatch your blanket from you and watch you with those gorgeous baby blues as you slowly die? Wow. Um... Somehow this particular emailer seems to know something about you that (laughs) the general public might not know. Uh, Yeah, I, uh, I hate that these are mutually exclusive. Like, I love the idea of holding my hand, like, all my loved ones are around, and then Bradley Cooper just barges in, <laughs> just strips the blanket, and everyone's like, eh, well, die doing what you love, and they just Unfortunately, sort of step back. Steve, <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Steve, your wife has set this as an either-or. You have to choose one or the other. Right, and if it was asked by anybody other than my wife, I might feel a little, well, you know what, she's expecting honesty. She knows the answer. <laughs> She, she knows it's going to be Bradley Cooper every time. Well, I mean, and here's the thing, though. This is the caveat, and I think this is a reasonable caveat. If I'm dying of old age, Bradley Cooper's not the Bradley Cooper he is now, necessarily. Mm. Um, though... I don't know. I don't know. You're getting up there. That's fair. That's a good point. <laughs> like, if you were to die today, you'd. St- I guess you'd still be like, well, he was so young. Right. When does that end? <laughs> 
<laughs> when does that phrase expire in my life? At what point? I mean, like, usually older people say that, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, you can get, like, a 97-year-old person to be like, oh, man, that whippersnapper. I think you're at the age, you're your mid-40s, so I think you're at the age where people will say it, but they won't mean it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right, yeah. If you were in your 30s, they would absolutely mean it. If you're in your 40s, they're like, well, I guess we should probably say it just out of respect. Yeah, I mean, there is kind of this understood, like, I mean, it's not like his better years were ahead of him. I mean, what, what was he going to accomplish later? So it sounds like he has a little bit of a man crush on Bradley Cooper, Steve. See, I don't know if I even need to qualify it as a man crush. Why can't I just call it a crush? Yeah, you have a crush. Yeah, have a crush. Yeah, and here's the thing is I, I'm a late adopter for Bradley Cooper. I think initially I thought maybe I just I didn't trust him. Mm. I didn't. I don't know if I trusted him as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure when it switched for me. Um, it was when he was a country music star and a star is born. No, nah, I think it was when he was facing 18, the movie. I loved him in American Hustle. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, that was, yes. We saw that together. No, we didn't. Yeah, we did. Did we really? Yep. This is your other friend named Anthony. I have no memory of this. <laughs> well, you're not going to be on my deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not. In fact... Unless you uh, want to be Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it wouldn't be so bad to just... <laughs> You're just waiting outside the door. Because it's going to take a while. Look, it, here's what she says. She says, have Bradley Cooper snatch your blanket from you and watch you <laughs> with those gorgeous baby blues as you slowly die. This is going to take a while. I could probably have a lot of interesting conversations with Brad as we're watching you die together. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the way the way she puts it, it almost sounds exciting, but there is an element of like, is he killing me? No, he's yeah, he's killing you for sure. <laughs> you need that blanket to survive, right? Uh, I should mention that you know this is sort of a veiled reference to a a, a movie that's coming out that we will be we will be covering soon, Nightmare right. Alley. Yeah, and this is going to be an interesting one too. I think we should probably when we get to that. Um, because this is not a, you know, a classic per se. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's relatively new, when, especially when this podcast is coming out. That we should probably have to, we'll have to position ourselves in a uh, like kind of like a spoiler warning, huh? I think we might have to. I think that we should probably just do a, a spoiler warning for all of these movies because some of these movies are so old and obscure that we shouldn't assume that people have seen them anyway. Right? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, honestly, we've got no complaints so far about the spoiler thing. And it could just be because we have, like, four four listeners <laughs> at this point. Yeah, one of them being my wife. Yeah, and so she's probably watching the movie with me, so. <laughs> All right, we do have a, uh Apple iTunes review that I'd like to look at. All right, this is from Can't Spell Cocoons Without a Spell Check. Same. This show is so much fun as a 90s child and a nerd. I love hearing Anthony and Steve discuss the significance of these films for our current pop culture. I'm following along with Perfect Stranger Things. Uh, Love all the shows you guys are doing. Thank you for creating this thoughtful and hilarious content. Maybe one day I'll learn how to spell cocoons. He calls himself a nerd, and I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of the evolution of that word. Now, I remember a time when being a nerd, you couldn't call yourself a nerd. In the same way that Sam from Game of Thrones scandalized the people around him when he called himself a craven. Mm. 
these days, someone could just call it like, for instance, this reviewer can actually self-identify as a nerd, almost as sort of a badge of pride. And I think I've heard my daughter call herself like a D&D nerd. Or, and I hear, you know, people can be thought, you know, people can call themselves a movie movie nerds or something like this. Star Wars nerd. Star Wars nerd. Um. Yeah, not, it's really, this word has really sort of lost its teeth. And I'm wondering when this happened. Yeah, I, I see, I think it was post uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Because I think it was still a ridiculous representation of what a nerd could be right like they still yeah, have... i don't think that movie wor- the premise of that movie doesn't work unless nerd has a really derogatory back yeah i mean i mean you and i both grew up in a it's nerd day at uh school so everybody get your pocket protectors i forgot about nerd day yeah there was a certain stereotype uh... right and it was really it was really fun to be able to walk around on nerd day and go oh i forgot it was nerd day but everyone tells me i look great Uh, all right this reviewer is hba bernie i'm just gonna assume maybe your name's bernie uh thank you bernie for writing in Uh, again if you write us a review on apple itunes it absolutely is gonna get read on this podcast yeah and I'm, i'm wondering if they fall in the same trap as i do where they want to put an extra c in cocoon yeah that's kind of that's my go-to if I'm going to misspell it. I throw another C in there. There was a reviewer that was really happy about our Diane Weist reference. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, that bit at the end about Diane Weist was gold. Thank you! Exclamation point. If you're in your 30s to 50s and enjoy 80s and 90s references and movies, this podcast is for you. Anthony and Steve are doing a great job. We that's really a, that's kind of because that was late in the podcast, so they li- mm-hmm. they listened to the whole. I the one person that did. I didn't even listen. It to wasn't the me. I don't think got there. I was like, oh, did, they, they actually made it. Okay. I was happy that the uh, Diane Weist. Well, let me let's just say this: you never know what's going to make people happy, and right. there was no way to know that Diane Weist was going to make anyone but you and I happy. <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. But clearly, there's a lot of Diane Weist fans out there that we. Sure. Didn't account for well yeah i mean it's like and that's the thing is you know sometimes joy shows up when you least expect it <laughs> see this this is this is part of the problem we can't <laughs> we can't use that we, I, you know i have to edit that out that's it's it's, it's horrible <laughs>
cocoon of horror.